wild game consumption um, and putting increasing the value of the wild game protein is, is going to have a, a massive impact. I mean, if, if we can just concentrate on, on growing our domestic consumption and, and putting a higher value on this protein, that that will have a massive um, we've got a long way to helping control populations. Welcome to a very special week of Dirty Linen. Uh, if you heard yesterday's podcast, you will know that I am handing over the microphone to chef and author Joe Barrett. Uh, we're celebrating the launch of Joe's book, Sustain, groundbreaking recipes and skills that could save the planet. And I thought rather than uh, me just chatting to Joe about all the interesting things that are on her mind that it would be great to get her to bring in some special guests to talk about different aspects of sustainability and how together we can make the world a better place. So Joe, I am going to handball the podcast to you. Um, welcome to Dirty Linen and take Dirty Linen away. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. I feel like I've got some very big shoes to fill um, and I'm really excited to have Billy Stoughton on the phone uh, from, from Discovered Wild Foods. As the name suggests, um, Australian wild game, venison, wild boar and goat, straight from the wild, free range, organic, nutrient dense, and most in most cases a pest, um, Billy and his business partner, Tara Medina, set up Discovered Wild Foods as a delicious and sustainable solution to invasive species in Australia. And I'm really pumped to speak with Billy. I've known Billy since Future Food System, and we spent a bit of time together However, just recently, myself and my partner have started to procure our own wild food. And after spending a bit of time in America, where it's a completely different culture around wild foods, I'm really keen to get Billy's insight into the industry and the potential for positive change for our environment in Australia. So welcome, Billy. Hi, Joe. Thanks. Great introduction. Very succinct. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I hope I got it right. And I just want to say a massive... Congratulations to you and Tara. Um, Discovered Wild Foods recently made it onto the 2023 sustainability, sustainability Leaders List for um, the Financial Review. And I want to say a massive congratulations. Yeah, look, appreciate it. That's, it's it's brilliant. It's, it's good recognition, actually, especially from such an esteemed publication. But it's it's nice to actually for people to sort of under, get an understanding and a bit of insight into um, how sustainable it really is. Could you give us a bit of insight into what Discovered Wild Foods is for the people who don't know? So, Discovered Wild Foods, it's essentially, um, I mean, practically it's a, it's a wild game harvest network that we have and, and a series of processing plants. And we're able to actually uh, go in and collect, harvest wild uh, animals within Australia that not, not all, obviously, any wild animals that have certain, um, you know, categories or, or, or certain... Uh, you know, uh, type of um, depending on their classification. So obviously, not all deer, for instance, and and certainly a lot of native species can't can't be harvested. But we're able to actually go and take animals from from the environment potentially that that having negative impact and and process them and produce them for as a food source. Would you classify classified as a butcher? Like a, or a butchery? Yeah, the, well, part of the business it's it's kind of uh, it's multifaceted. It's a because we we're actually in the field, so we have harvesters delivery in the field. We have processing, so we meat processing, so we've got to skin them, um, which is a separate registration. Then we actually have a butchery, is sort of the third step, and then 
there's logistics and depending on they're going into retailers from there or we, we're doing direct to consumer. So part of it certainly is butchery. Yeah. Wow. And then and how did you get into it? I feel like, um, like, are you a hunter? And was it something that you started doing growing up or did you just see a gap in the market or? Well, yeah, sorry. So I grew up in the country. I grew up in the upper Murray. So very top of the Murray river <clears throat> and was hunting sort of, all the time as a kid and never really hunting um, deer or, or pigs or anything. They weren't, sort of weren't really around. And then it was later on, sort of getting into my 20s, that there just suddenly was this massive influx of deer. And at the same time, I'd, I'd spent a bit of time in the Northern Territory for a couple of years and I'd been involved in some game management programs. To, uh, it's probably a general term, but we would go out and even in helicopters and actually manage uh populations of, of, of pigs and even donkeys and, and all sorts of animals. And it, it's a funny sort of juxtaposition being being involved in farming, in agriculture, where you're trying to produce protein and at the same time going out and, and managing pro to other protein sources just because they're, they're not favourable, you know, there's no there's no current market for them. But as you, you, know, as you said in the intro there, nutrient-dense um, and potentially uh, in a lot of cases they do a lot better than than the animals that we're actually trying to cultivate. So cattle, sheep, you know, these, the, the primary agricultural sources, uh, they do well in some Australian climate and some, some areas, but for a lot of, you know, the rangeland, um, the wild deer and, and pigs, they just do exceptionally well. So, you know, I was <clears throat> involved in sort of seeing this where you'd be struggling to bring to rare cattle, especially up in the north. And you'd see these fat pigs just multiplying every time there's a rain. They'd be everywhere and we'd be drenching cattle, you know, mustering cattle and there'd be massive attrition rates and you'd be dealing with climatic issues and all these wild animals are just doing extremely well. And it was the sort of same when I was at home. We, You know, you'd even in the, in the middle of a drought, you'd find these wild animals, um, this game species in particular deer that just do so well in, in our bushlands. And there was a trigger point in 2018 – um, they Victorian government allowed the commercialization of, of wild deer. So they, they weren't directly classified as a pest, but then suddenly you, you were allowed to use them for commercial purposes, whereas before you'd only be able to use them for, uh, for, for pet meats and, and non-commercial, so for private use. Do you think that's because the problem just became so big? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It was, a, you know, it was a response to the problem. So they'd been classified and they were introduced initially as a game species sort of by gentleman hunters in the 1800s and they'd been managed um, and cultivated for, for, you know, for decades around being a viable source of game to, to hunt, which, uh, you know, I mean, we can completely understand it. Even as a kid growing up, it was so exciting to see deer coming in into the environment and you'd, you'd walk around the bush and any sign of them, you'd see rubs on trees or you'd see some tracks and it'd just be so, it'd be exhilarating. So I completely understand where everyone was coming from. But then, you know, on the other side of it, suddenly now um, those deer signs are, they're, I mean, they're everywhere. They're prevalent. You're seeing highways, the tracks cutting through the sides of hills and wallows and in, um, you know, in, in delicate wetlands and trees are getting ring barked because there's just so many deer rubbing on them. I guess native flora and fauna for other like critters and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, and they, you know, they, they, they do our compete. I mean, it's the same thing. We obviously Australian native animals also do really well. Um, you know, so like do, doing is actually, it's a, it's a term relating to food consumption versus sort of uh, output, how much protein or fat you can put on. 
So your X amount of kilos of, of a food type goes and get, gives you X amount of weight gain. So deer actually, if you if you put cattle or sheep out into our national parks, for instance, they wouldn't do. They would they'd, they'd go backwards, they'd lose condition and be be sort of impalatable. But you look at you know in our bushlands, you see really healthy kangaroos and wallabies, and then you see these deer and and pigs, and they just do they do exceptionally well. So it's sort of it was you know part of that idea that if you've got if you've got to manage um, if you've got to manage these populations uh, because they're going to be encroaching on 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 farmland, and so long as there is farming in Australia, there's going to be management of of you know these external species of of um, game or, or wild animals. So how is it that we can't utilize that? How how is it that we can't take that and and maybe make it a viable and and valued protein in its own right? Is it, and then so when the legislation changed, is that when you kind of thought, oh, well I've seen the damage, like this is an opportunity? Yeah, it was. I was actually at a um, I was at a hunting conference uh, in Myrtleford. It was a deer hunting expo, and there was a would have been Victorian Parks or it might have been Delp um, had a stall with information on deer and the guy said that they literally just legalized it just just legislated um, for the commercialization so we I, it sort of got my mind racing and it was it's something I'd thought of um, over, you know you, you look at the big picture and it was it always made sense that we could there are international markets for for goat and international markets for deer and international markets for boar and they'd you know, Australia had met those markets with varying levels of success, but just sort of looking at it, that was a, it was this what is a problem? Just saw it, you know, an amazing opportunity. So, was talking about it with a my current business partner and a very good friend of mine, uh, Tara Medina, and we were she's um, she's very she's very clever and uh, ambitious young girl. So we we were sort of sitting and talking about it, and just realised that you know if, if if it's such a good idea and if, it, if the opportunity is right there, then we, you know, it was remiss of us not to take it if we could see it right there. And what the upside obviously is, is, you know, massive positive impact um, on, on the environment. Uh, but it's also, you know, potentially a huge viable uh, resource that we, you know, it's just a matter of coming up with, with a method and, and getting some backing and, and working with the right people to make it all happen. Yeah, which I think um, probably is the biggest question for me because I feel like there is such a potential there. And then if you look around, why isn't everybody kind of jumping on that opportunity? And I guess <laughs> it probably wasn't easy setting up Discovered because it's not like you can kind of herd deer and then pop them through an abattoir. So c- could you run through the process, I guess, of how you attain the proteins and then what is your kind of chain to get it to a consumer? Yep. So you're right. The, the opportunities is definitely huge. And I mean, Australia is huge and our wild population, our wild animal populations are huge. Uh, and international markets are huge. So it's all, you know, it's all there, but to actually get it to the markets, you've got, uh, you know, roaming populations of, of wild animals that, that, Although they may have sort of a ranging homeland, those population densities are constantly changing, and they're moving, and their seasonality. You've, and then you've got people, individuals with with skill, um, and you've got se- you know a whole series of, of harvesters as accredited harvesters. And so that to get the accreditation, there's a whole 
series of um, TAFE courses and uh, skill sets that have to be achieved and then you've got to get your registrations. So, and they've got to be constantly maintained and then you've got to get access to the properties because currently it can only be only be harvested on, on private properties. There's no access to national parks. Um, although the animals come from the national parks often, they'll be coming from the bush into the into um, sort of that fringe country or in, onto ag properties. And then you've got, you know, the seasonality, so cold, mainly the best harvesting periods are uh, during the colder months um, when you're dealing with rain and snow and ice and fog and frost. And then you've got, you know, people, humans that are still going to be out there in those conditions night after night uh, dealing with their own, you know, personal stuff. They've got things and potentially day jobs and bits and pieces. And that that's only just getting the animal from, from the field. And then you've still got to get into a cool room. So you've got to – they – harvest the animal um there's you know a certain amount of skills and accuracy training you got to do but you've, you've got to be able to shoot the animal in the head so it has to be a single shot to the brain and then you've got to be able to get in and bleed the animal within 20 minutes so you've got to get access to it, it has to be in a spot that's retrievable and then you've got to get on bled and on and then eviscerated which is where you take out um sort of all the way from the throat down to the anus you take it out as all one encapsulated body so there's actually no spillage from any of the the internal um from the internals, from from the from the guts, uh, and then you've got to be able to get that animal onto the onto your ute, so onto your, your rack, which is a, generally a stainless steel accredited harvesting rack, and then you've got to get it from there back into a chiller, so a registered site with um, before sun comes up, and and then it's got to go into your chiller and get a, a deep muscle probe and and a data logger, and it has to get down to below sort of seven degrees within the first twenty four hours and, and held there. And from there, it gets trans- either that is the processing plant or generally that'll be a field chiller. And then from the field, it's got to get transported to our processing plant where it is hung and, and kept at temperature, generally below four degrees, um, for a number of days. So we like to hang it you know, up to seven days with the skin on to, just to get that consistency of, of texture and, and tenderness. And then it gets scun. And then once it's scun, you've still got to break it down, butcher it, and process it into its various cuts and pack it. And then, um, you know, pack and label and restore and then send to either distributors or direct to consumer or, or people like yourself, you know, into the food service industry, which is, which is where we're really trying to aim. Um, and then you, they sort of require it in a, in a time frame and have orders backed up. But, you know, you're always at the, at the mercy of the seasonality and, and conditions and logistics <laughs> and chillers breaking down. And so it's, um, yeah, the opportunity is huge, but the, the, practical the practicality of actually getting animals from the bush uh through a hc chain to you know in a really high quality hc chain and, and a humane hc chain to the plate there's a there's a, a lot of steps and a lot of um you know a lot of moving parts which makes it all makes it exciting but doesn't make it easy i can you know just <laughs> finding the deer at the start you know going through that whole process is incredible and you know, you end up with a product that is, there's no hormones, there's no antibiotics, free range, it's doing what it was doing. Can you tell a difference, you know, from farming and agriculture to now wild foods? Have you noticed a big difference within the protein and even just the climate of like, are people receiving wild foods in a positive way? Um, I think it's like with anything, there are, whether or not it's subtle or not, the the protein, obviously, as a wild, it, it, part of it is, how, is the handling and the condition of the animal to a degree. But the 
generally it's a leaner it's a leaner meat, but it has this amazing amazing sort of nutrient density that once you start to eat it, you do notice that feeling, that sort of energizing vitality that it that it gives you. It doesn't give you that sort of burden. You know, you don't have a, a feeling of being sort of weighted down, regardless of the quantity you eat. I mean, I, I had some um, some samba venison samba t bones for lunch. <laughs> I expect I just popped into the, the butcher shop in Beechworth here and I grabbed some. They're absolutely brilliant. But the – yeah, I, I – look, I Jeff, I genuinely and always have felt um, – you can, yeah, notice the difference in terms of how, how the actual meat makes you feel. Uh, then obviously the more you look into it and the more you get an understanding of – if you can consciously get an understanding that what you're eating also has a benefit, I think that also plays a part. You know, if you know that if you can – I've sort of always looked at at um, hunger as you know as like the last untapped renewable energy source. You, you, we sort of humans. There's a lot of us, you know, seven billion and growing, and we have this hunger that just you know, even if you eat three hours later, you're hungry again. And it's just this never-ending energy source. And if we can direct that and sort of c- try and control it towards positive outcomes, I think that's going to have a huge impact on, on on how we move forward and how we progress and have, you know. <laughs> improve the sustainability of our conditions so i think if we can that's sort of all part of the mission you know if you can if we know that the product um the quality of the product and the the nutrient density and how it actually reacts in your own body is 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 good and it's you know it's a it's a really it's a positive and if we know that removing these animals from the environment within australia um, has a net is really positive and you know has a massive net benefit to the environment and and you combine those two factors it's sort of it you know it definitely makes eating more of this meat seem really like like the right thing to do and gives you a good feeling as you're eating it yeah i totally agree with you and i guess there's the subject of kind of population management and the culling programs that happen in australia which like it's easy to say it, it doesn't make sense um because they're they are a protein that we could be eating do you ever see there being a point in the future where those culling programs could kind of be curbed maybe more towards like protein attainment or, you know, maybe wild foods could become more prevalent in our supermarkets rather than either the poisoning of them and them dying in parks or just the, you know, shooting and being left to die. <laughs> yeah, there's the culling. I mean, I guess wild game management, is, it's always a system and I think, that, you know, multifaceted, there are, control methods that need to be implemented and I, I don't think this is the silver bullet I, I think this is I think game harvesting is is part of a system I don't think it is is the one answer I think the culling programs that exist generally focus on high sensitive um, environments so you know mountaintops I, there was some a good harvesting they were doing some aerial culling recently um, in, you know, in up, up in the up Murray Oil from a Mount on Pine Mountain, which is actually the largest monolith in Australia, and it it's really sensitive area. You can't really get in there and harvest, and, and even if you could, it's a national park, so you can't actually withdraw the meat. So, there, I think that culling plays a pro, plays a part for sure, but baiting programs, um, I think, have been have been proven to be disastrous in 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 New Zealand. Um, also, given that deer are herbivores they it's difficult to then to prevent other animals from eating the same baits there's a whole and then they, the animals die and generally have toxins in them and then who's going to be you know which natives are eating the animals there's a whole and you know that 
I, I also think we've, we've got a responsibility to not to for humane destruction, which is part of the training that you get to become a harvester. You, humane destruction of the animal is, is imperative. It's actually, it's absolutely integral. So a single shot to the brain um, is, is essential, especially when the animal's in its native environment and it's, it's living its best life. The, the only way to actually shoot an animal in the head is if it's not moving. And generally, as soon as they know you're there and they're under any stress, they'll move. So to be able to, to, be able to, to destroy or, or kill an animal um, without it moving, without it being under stress, is the most humane method possible, in, in, in my opinion. So from a culling doesn't necessarily achieve that. Generally, they are on the run. You shouldn't from a helicopter. Then you have to put multiple bullets into them. So there's a, but as I said, I, I think it's part of a control method that will always be around, and I think it's valuable for um for those you know high sensitive environmental areas where, where you can't, we you know we have harvesters that do a lot of culling as well, and they're they're generally from the ground. They'll be going in camping for for a week at a time in national parks and and taking out resident populations that you know. Uh, hunters can't get to um people aren't going to go to the effort to get to these things but they still cause a lot of damage in these particular areas so yeah i, I think everything has a part to play but i definitely think that wild game consumption um and putting increasing the value of the wild game protein is is going to have a, a massive impact i mean you, you, yeah i think i think if, if we can just concentrate on on growing our domestic consumption and, and putting a higher value on this protein that that will have a massive um, they've got a long way to helping control populations, you know, and prevent this rapid population growth at the very least. I don't think it'll ever get rid of animals altogether. Um, I think they're here, here to stay, but that means we, we need ongoing control methods. Um, and to have an ongoing culling method, you know, in the, in the 1920 financial year, that was $25 million put together from the Victorian budget into uh, wild game management and that's meant for wild dogs and, and deer and, and pigs but they put I believe you know the vast majority of that into the into deer management which was predominantly aerial culling so let's say you know 20 million bucks um, to control deer and I, the numbers you'd be able to get it but you know we're talking thousands of deer you know we're not talking hundreds of thousands of deer not talking tens of thousands they shot thousands of deer you know through our system and through our network of harvesters we're able to get 30, 40, 50,000 deer a year, you know, and grow, and we could grow that significantly if we, if we could continue to grow the market. It's incredible. Like, um, just recently I went to America for a, um, a bow hunting, not a hunting trip, but like a bow obstacle course. And we did a bit of cooking in Aspen for the Aspen Food and Wine Show. And I'd never really been to America for something that was related to hobbies like that. And I kind of had this expectation that, well, you know, everyone would be eating deer because hunting over there is a bit more accepted than here. And I know that has to do with firearm regulations over there and the difference here. Um, but, you, you know, it's a multi-million dollar industry in America and, and not here. Um, but I cooked venison thinking that it was going to be, you know, everyone would be eating venison. And it was very well received, but it wasn't local venison. And it, it came from New Zealand um, and it was a farmed uh, farmed venison, which I had no idea about. And then I kind of started to look into it and saw that majority of venison eaten outside of Australia um, and the rest of the world is coming from New Zealand. And I know in America, they've got the Maui Nui venison, which is they're doing culling on one of the um, islands in Hawaii. Do you think, you know, with what's happening in Australia, it could ever go to a, an export level, you know, considering it's such an issue here? 
Certainly. We, uh, our midterm goal is to get export. Um, path to export is difficult. You, it's a different tier of processing plant. You need an Equus approved vet and your controls are a lot higher. So then it's a, it's an enormous expense, but that I think, um, you know, New, New Zealand's a great example because in say the eighties, Australia and New Zealand were on parity regarding game consumption and, and venison consumption. And the New Zealand government actually bound boarded together with, you know, with, with agricultural groups, um, and individuals to, to create a sort of a game body and they actively marketed the consumption of game and a lot of that was in response to their wild populations and, and they had an enormous wild deer population that was actually a massive problem and they they at the same time started a, a, a domestic venison herd and a stra- and you know subsequently they with that sort of concerted effort from government and, and private sectors they've managed to get fully on top of their wild deer population to the point that now it's sort of reserved for hunting. Um, they don't necessarily have a lot of wild game harvesting anymore and their national herds are about a million deer um, and is by far the largest deer producer in the world. Whereas Australia, our national herd is about 40,000 currently. Um, but our wild herd is probably about, depending who you look at, you know, minimum 2 million sort of the higher, higher grade would be, would be 4 million. So it's sort of the, the complete reverse and that's, that's come from a lack of coordination, a lack of a coordinated sort of response. Um, you, you know, the domestic consumption of venison in New Zealand's about 20 times what Australia's is. So I, I think that's, you know, as a, as a, as a study, New Zealand's a great example. If, if we can, they, they actually have their reverse, their, their, their deer populations. And I think America, you know, the American, their appetite for wild is, is huge and growing and they do have a really strong, uh, game, a really strong hunting culture. They commercial harvesting of deer is illegal because they're a native species, so their their parks and parks and wildlife act don't allow it. And I, I don't know if it necessarily will. Whereas the axis deer on Maui Nui, so on the actual Marinui venison, they're an axis deer. They're an imported deer, which is why it's allowed. So the but you know that yeah. I think the opportunity into America is enormous. Um, getting it there is, is, you know, there's a hurdle around 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 cash, but the there's no necessary hurdle around that supply network. But then, you know, in tandem with that, and, and, and working with that is developing this developing this this domestic demand, which is where people like yourself come in, Joe, and, and great podcasts like this, where you can spread the word and get the awareness out of exactly what you know, how big the opportunity is, how good and the quality of the, the protein um, and that the more we eat, the better it is, you know, across the board. It's been an interesting time because, you know, the probably a couple of years ago, the most I'd done with venison is pretty much what everyone else had done, probably just seared a loin. <laughs> and then I started getting into the idea of, you know, procuring your own food um, and, you know, with Mark Lebroy and met I, – and to be honest, I, I thought – hunting was really bogan and it was just guys walking around with guns and then I went to Broadside and went on a deer hunt and my whole kind of view was flipped where actually a lot of these guys and girls are looking to for a sustainable protein um, and you know since then I've started to really cook a lot more with venison and we do at the restaurant and it's delicious and I probably get more excited about the fact that it is 
you know, that it can be a solution to a problem um, and started to doing more like braising, um, like slow cooking and, you know, I, you often kind of tie up lean meats being dry but, you know, cooking the shanks and the heels and they're full of, you know, gelatinous um, deliciousness uh, and beautiful stocks and broths and sauces that you can get from the bones. So it's been really exciting and um, I guess – we're running out of time, but to, you know, what is your favorite cut on the deer and, and how do you like to cook it? <laughs> uh, I definitely like, I definitely like, um, I mean, I, I, I really like those gelatinous slow cooked bone cuts like shanks and even some of the shoulder and, and the neck rosettes in a stew, but I, I live on very, very rare and we're talking even cold blue uh, loin and primal cuts. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's my daily routine. It's just a vast amount of protein intake, <laughs> but it is you know there's there's definitely there's definitely a trick to it. There's well, it's, there's a trick to it. It's just a matter. It's just a way. That, it's just a slightly different way of handling it, isn't it? It's you can't just rep. You can't just take it and, and apply the same techniques you would with beef or lamb. It doesn't sort of that. It's not as forgiving, but at the same time, once you get an understanding, it's it's no more difficult. I think um, you know what I'm learning. Here's some, a tip for all my chef friends out there who are thinking to put venison on their menus, not simmering it too have hard. So I've been putting it in the oven about 85 degrees and you leave it in there overnight and you can get really similar results that you can get from cooking, you know, slow cooking lamb or, um, you know, beef, but the flavor is so different. It's a lot lighter um, so you can kind of marry up vegetables and herbs a lot easier and you feel a bit lighter after eating it. So I, I think if anyone's kind of thinking about trying venison in the restaurant, do it. I think, And, you know, we've had it received really well by people coming in to dine. They haven't really blinked an eye, especially when the only red meat option has been venison. It hasn't <laughs> turned anyone off. Um, Billy, I think what you and Tara do is incredible. And it's exciting for Australia and um, the whole industry and such a great solution. And I, yeah, I've got a pie recipe in the cookbook for people who, who want to try um, cooking venison and as well wallaby. That's another animal that has culling programs involved. Um, just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast and thanks for what you do. Absolute pleasure and thoroughly enjoy what we're doing as well. So thanks for having me. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.